0: be seated. I want to dismiss the uh, school-aged kids to the back. We'll, uh, we'll go be learning back there. While they're doing that, I'd invite you to open your uh, Bibles, if you brought them, to Luke chapter 2. Um, if not, maybe you use your device for that. We will have Scripture on the screen, but I really encourage you to, uh, to read it and become more and more familiar with uh, the Word of God to us. It's a little overwhelming to hear Matt and Jamie talk about this. 60 million people that haven't heard. And I really thought of two things as they're sharing. Um, one, in even the Christmas story where the angel Gabriel says that nothing will be impossible with God. Isn't that amazing? Nothing impossible. And God is at work all around us and we don't see it sometimes. Nothing impossible. The hardest person you've ever encountered to love, they're lovable because nothing's impossible with God. Um, Sixty million people in a country where you can't bring the gospel is like, that's just not impossible for God. As a matter of fact, when Jesus came, (laughs) the whole world's lost at that point, right? Jesus is bringing the gospel. And he tells his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. And I used to think, and I prayed that as we came, and I've prayed that almost every day since we started this church, that God would send forth laborers. And I used to think that that was God sending people from outside of our church covenant into our church, basically While what I was praying, so that we would have help like living out what God's called us to. And he has done that, and that is certainly part of it. But I think more than that, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. We're praying that God would change our hearts so that we become the laborers. Most of us, even maybe without even mentioning it, we just we come week after week and we're more consumers than contributors. We come to soak up, to leave and then come back to soak up again, and God is saying that he has planted that spiritual truth, he's changed our lives, he's, he's made us ministers of reconciliation, so that we would understand our call um, as part of his mission to go. I want to look uh, this morning in Luke uh, chapter 2... Just the second part of the, we looked at Simeon last week. We've been in a series, Advent series, called Ordinary People, Extraordinary Faith. And uh, just caught up with the characters in the scripture story and how ordinary they are. But what God did through them was nothing sor- short of supernatural. And you think about Mary as a little teenager and Joseph. Um, we see as they're dedicating Jesus in the temple that they were just incredibly poor Didn't even have a proper sacrifice to to give that day. Gave a couple pigeons. We think of Simeon, this um, elderly priest in the temple. We see today Anna. We see shepherds in the field. On and on, ordinary people with this extraordinary faith. And again, there in this really dark world, we see through Paul's journeys that... The gospel goes from uh, Jerusalem all the way into Caesar's household in a f- couple years, and even into what's now Asia Minor within a decade. And the gospel just exploded to the, the entire known world, went from being completely dark um, to the gospel prevailing. And I'm praying that same thing um, over uh, certainly um, places in Asia, but I'm praying that over uh, even our nation. You know, our nation um, is now uh, the third largest mission field in the world. That there are Chinese missionaries flooding into America to bring the gospel here. Where the church should be so predominant. I read a study even this week that said uh, they're forecasting by 2025 that only 4% of America um, will, will be evangelical believers. When we look at this, we see Anna... Praying for the redemption of Israel. Let me start in verse 30, uh, 36. Uh, again, the scene there's Joseph and Mary bringing uh, Jesus to the temple. They see Simeon. Now, this prophetess Anna comes up. And there was this prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who, uh, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, up until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see this lady, she's been in the temple um, as a widow for decades and decades, at least probably 60 years, maybe more than that. She's been fasting and praying and watching and waiting for the redemption of Israel, and now Jesus is here, and she immediately, in her joy, goes to speak about this to the others who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Now, most people had given up on the redemption of Israel. It had been thousands of years since this promise had come, and year after year, it didn't happen, and many, 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 many had given up. But there's always a remnant of people who are waiting to see God fulfill what he has promised. Anna and Simeon and Mary and Joseph and the people we are introduced to in the Christian story, again, pretty ordinary people with this extraordinary faith, were part of this remnant that's waiting. And they represent millions and millions of people and thousands of thousands of years where people had been waiting. Can you imagine just that that becomes your legacy that you're waiting? Of those millions of people and thousands and thousands of years, let's just kind of catch up and go through a few thousand years of biblical history of the story of God, and we'll try to do this quick. i got 22 minutes left. But shortly after the fall, I mean, just a couple dozen verses in Genesis 3, we see that God promises that he will heal this now broken world. By the death of his own son. And after that promise, until it was filled at Christmas that we're speaking of here, the people of God waited on God to fulfill what had been promised. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses, God sustained them and kept pointing toward the time where the Messiah would come and he would begin to set the captive free and he would begin to restore and heal the broken. And that promise that God had given them wasn't just, as he's leading them to this promised land, wasn't just about a land that the Lord had said he would give them. It was so much more than that. God was taking these descendants of Abraham somewhere. And after 100 years from that promise, and then another 400 years of wandering in slavery in Egypt, finally Moses is on the scene. And they think he might be the Messiah. But he's just there as a foreshadow of what Jesus was to be. He brings God's people out of bondage and towards the promised land. It would be another hundred years before God's people would finally cross the Jordan and begin to settle in that land. But God had not forgotten his people. Deuteronomy 7 says that these people were people holy to the Lord their God. The Lord their God chose them as a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. So the people of God grew up with this command to tell the story of God, their story, the story of the rebellion in the garden and the devastation of the flood and the wanderings of the patriarchs and the covenant promises God made to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses, the 400 years of bondage in Egypt and God's deliverance that followed. But what was the point? God had claimed the people as his own, a people he swore to one day fully redeem and fully restore. This wasn't simply a matter matter of the divine helping his people when they got into trouble. No, this was a matter of affection and adoption and redemption and of salvation belonging from beginning to end to the Lord. Another 700 years would pass until Isaiah the prophet speaks so clearly. Maybe a passage you're familiar with about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Can you imagine that legacy, those scriptures being passed down from person to person, this idea of Emmanuel, or God with us, and they're, they're under the oppression of Rome, even in the situation where Jesus is born, and they're praying, God, would you just come and be with us? Again, a couple chapters later, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace with such a clear prophecy surely the coming of christ was just around the corner however it would be another 300 years of prophets and prophecies and god's people would continue the cycle of serving the lord and then forgetting him and then disobedience and then the consequences that would come again and again this cycle happens and then things grew dark I mean, darker than they were because the last word from the Lord to his people came through the servant Malachi about the coming Savior several times in his book. But in chapter 3 and in chapter 5, here's chapter 3, verse 1. God says through the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Does that sound familiar? John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then would come the intertestamental period of utter darkness. No word from the Lord at all for 430 years until an angel appears to Zechariah. I find it tough to wait an hour or a week certainly a year, 430 more years than these people are waiting. Now they have a legacy of just waiting on God. Again, many people have given up. It had to be hard waiting all those years. Can you even imagine fighting back the fear that maybe God had forgotten them? Maybe that's a fear that you have felt as you pray and pray and don't see God move immediately that God has forgotten you. It would have been easy to reduce every bit of their existence just to get, man, let's get out of bondage and captivity. But they were really hoping for the wrong thing. God's covenant from the very beginning wasn't just about that he would deliver them from or what he would deliver them from. His promise wasn't only a call out of bondage, though it was that, it was a call to someone. God's call on the lives of his people have always been, above everything else, a call to himself. He set his affection on his people and he promised to make them clean and give them life, life abundantly, Jesus would clarify, beyond what they could hope or even dream. They waited and waited and waited. In Galatians 4, Paul says it this way, but when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. It's better than we even hoped. It wasn't just delivery from bondage. It wasn't just uh, uh, just, uh, easing the oppression. It was better than we hoped that we, as the Gentiles, get to be part of God's family. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And God wasn't late. While God rarely comes at our appointed time, he always comes at the right time. And our job is not to hurry him along, but to patiently wait with hope to have faith in his timing. That's the kind of theme of the message today. We talked about faith in God's promises. This is talking about faith in God's timing. See, God's idea of on time and my idea of on time are strangely different. Again, I want things right now. I'm ready for the drones from Amazon to start dropping things in my front yard. Like, that would be literally amazing. Just this week, I went to Starbucks, and there was three people in the drive-thru, and I parked and ran inside and got my drink and got back in the car before a car had moved. And I was like, that's a score for the day, right? I didn't have to wait, right? I want things right now. And then when we look at this, the story of God from Genesis to the first Christmas— we see thousands of years from that first promise to the fulfillment in Luke 2 and there have been thousands of years between that first Christmas and this Christmas and we've been ra- waiting on Christ to come again to fully finish what he began where Christ comes and gets rid of sin and we see the end of time through the lens of revelation of every tribe and tongue and no more sickness and tears and we're still waiting we are awaiting people and my encouragement to you and I implore you today is to have faith in God's timing why does God ask us to wait why does he delay when he could certainly act why does God allow things when he could step in and prevent them I don't know the answers to all those questions I know that God is good and that we can trust him and sometimes that's all we have to hold on to, for our faith to wrap itself around. Waiting is possibly the hardest thing for a Christian to do. Now, waiting's not passivity. A couple months ago, I asked a guy, how's the job hunt going? He said, oh, I'm just waiting on God. I'm like, no, that's stupid. You haven't, like, put in a resume or anything? Like, waiting on God is not passivity, like, I'm just gonna, we're just gonna wait here and moan about the fact that there are 60 million people over there that haven't heard the name of Jesus. That's, that's stupid. We have to work and we have to pray and we do what we can, but at the end of the day, we know that God is sovereign and we can rest and we can trust that His timing is perfect. Look at Anna here. Anna, part of this remnant who's in the temple, and she is, says she's been fasting and praying in the temple for over 70 years. That's unbelievable. Waiting is I've done everything I know to do, but it hasn't been enough. It's a great picture of our Sabbath, that I've worked and now I rest. As I studied this week, I came up with at least three ways that waiting on God is good for us. And there's many more than this, and we only have time for a few. First, it reminds us that we aren't God. Waiting or having to wait reminds us that we aren't God. Most of us have a perspective problem. We think we are at the center of this story. Big me, little God. And that everything should kind of rotate around us. But that's not the God of the Bible, and that's not the narrative of Scripture at all. If anything, it's big God, little me. Discouragement in the life of a Christian normally comes when God doesn't do what we want him to, when we want him to do it. But God almost never works according to our timetable. Just look through Scripture and how many times did God almost stack the deck against his people. Just to prove. Moses, when he walked into Pharaoh, it says in Scripture that, Pharaoh, that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why is that? Why, 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 did, why did that happen? Why didn't God soften Pharaoh's heart so that all the people just leave on the first try? Let me tell you why. Because if he would have done that, everyone would have been praising Moses. Look at Moses, our great deliverer, that came in the first time and took us all out of here. But no, when they actually left, they were praising God because they saw what God could do. Waiting reminds us that we aren't God. How many times did the disciples get so frustrated with Jesus about his timing? I mean, just when they were ready to usher him as king, he would, like, disappear, or the one time when, when, when they, he was with Jairus and they were going to heal his daughter and it was super urgent and they're going quick. They're taking an ambulance basically to, to go to the daughter and a lady reaches out and grabs his coat and it heals her. You remember this? And Jesus stops everything. He basically gets out of the ambulance to make a coffee stop and to talk with this lady, and he's, he's conversing, and surely his disciples are saying, Jesus, you don't understand, this girl is dying, and even while they're doing this, the report comes that the daughter had died. Aren't the disciples looking at each other, saying, I know Jesus is a good dude, but he, his timing is so off, like he just has no clue. A few chapters later, in John 11, his friend Lazarus is sick. You remember this, right? The report comes to Jesus. It says in verse 6 of chapter 11, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. There's no urgency. There's no quickness. There's not. They were just half a day's journey from where he was. Certainly he could have got there quicker. They got the report that Lazarus had died. Of course, the disciples, I'm sure, the looks they were giving to each other about this supposed king they were following and his timing issue Jesus told them plainly that Lazarus has died and for your sake I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe and they showed up remember and the sisters met Jesus outside of the way and said Jesus he's he's died and Jesus wept And then perform that great miracle by just calling him out of the grave. Aren't you glad you aren't God? Doesn't that just relieve you? When you see the king of kings. Look at his power that death doesn't scare him. It's just not a big deal that Lazarus has died. I mean, he's emotionally affected. It's his friend. We don't know exactly all the reasons that why he's moved to tears there. But the death doesn't even scare him. He just talks to death the greatest enemy that we have in death, Jesus just steps up and says, Lazarus, just come on back. That's unbelievable. And that's the king of kings. The death doesn't scare him. And I, look also at his love. This is a king who cries, a king who loves, a king who cares about the little things that bother us, the things that keep us up late at night. The psalmist says that there's this, there's this bowl that like gathers our tears, that God keeps record of those things. What kind of God is this? that knows the things that really bother or stress or cause us anxiety and even invites us to give those things to him because he cares so much for us. Waiting reminds us that we aren't God. Waiting redirects our worship. Tim Keller said on his Twitter, I was reading this, He said, if you say that I believed in God and I trusted God and he didn't come through. The truth is you really only trusted God to meet your agenda. And that's not true worship in the first place. That's not the gospel. For most of us, although we claim to worship God, we often really worship other idols. And this is the great pull of culture on us. And this is what's exposing us even during this time of year of materialism and, um, and, and being invited to all the right places and knowing all the right things. It's just kind of it exposes these idols that we really worship. But waiting helps to expose those idols of our heart and prayerfully through the kindness of God. It's realigned with the greater things in life. Waiting is a standard part of life in our world, regardless if it feels easy or if it feels difficult. In the moment, we'll all have to wait. And how we wait is shaping the people that we're becoming. For the Christian worship is an essential part of waiting. Because a Godward perspective helps us persevere with patience and hope. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 5, verse 4, that endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The Holy Spirit, even now, friends, is working in your heart. Right now, as I speak, the Holy Spirit is working to realign and redirect your worship. To expose the idols, to... Through his kindness, lead us to repentance. Waiting redirects our worship. Is the last little thing that I want to share. Waiting reveals our identity. Look back at Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Romans 8, Paul would further clarify in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. We are the sons and daughters of God. We're part of his family, heirs to God's kingdom, filled with God's spirit and waiting with hope on his return. It may have stuck out to you that last phrase there in Romans 8, provided we suffer with him. I don't know how all these prosperity gospel teachers miss so much of this like this is part of the christian life that you will suffer with him whether it's this low level angst just experiencing difficulty in the world losing people that you love having friends betray you heartache loneliness just just the, the effects of living in a broken world And we suffer and we persevere and we do this because waiting reveals even part of our identity. That we can wait with confidence and hope because we're part of God's family and his Holy Spirit is at work in each and every one of us that claim Jesus right now testifying that we are sons and daughters of God but also empowering us to expose idols and redirect our our worship in the right place, to give us strength to walk out in the mission of God and to even our very calling of why we were created. And while we wait, here's a few promises of God that we can hold on to. I'm going to fly through these. Psalms 40 verse 1 says, While we wait on God, he hears our prayers. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. While we wait on God, he hears our prayers. When we wait on God, he acts on our behalf. Isaiah 64, 4. No, I have seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. When we wait on God, he gives us strength. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Maybe you've heard this. But they who wait on the Lord, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles and should, they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Those who wait on the Lord. God gives us strength. Now, not everyone has the strength this morning to soar like eagles. Sometimes it's just enough strength to run, and sometimes it's just enough strength to walk. But God gives us strength when we wait on him. Waiting is as much a posture of our hearts as it is a reference to time. We can't hurry the plan of God no matter how hard we try, but we do have two options. One, the most natural response to waiting is to worry To make new plans and to settle for shortcuts. To worry, make new plans and settle for shortcuts. Well, God didn't move like I wanted him to move, and and then he just seems to be really distant. So maybe I maybe he's just forgot about me and and I just need maybe you're single in the room and he's just not sent that person, right? The one, and so you're tempted to to make a shortcut. Maybe he's not given you what you've asked for and you keep asking. Maybe he's not healed when you're, when you're sick and you're, and you're praying and he hasn't come through. And the temptation is to worry, to make new plans or settle for shortcuts. Like we have to bypass God's plan in order to get something done as if God fell asleep on the job. But option two, what we get from Anna in this passage is to work and to pray and then rest and trust. We work and we do what we can do and we pray that God would do something incredible that we would see him flex his supernatural muscles that we would see something in our day just as we just as we saw in the day of Jesus where we see thousands and thousands of people come to Christ we see entire cultures rearranged and changed that we saw in the first and second great awakening where again thousands of people come to Christ this unique movement of God through his spirit. And we pray for that and we work towards that, but in the end of the day, we rest and we trust. Doesn't this lift the burden on your heart that this is a work of God? And he's not asking us to save the 60 million. He's really not. You know what he's asking us to do? He's just asking us to lay our yes on the table. That's really all he's asking us to do. We look at the Christmas story. We see these ordinary people that didn't have any real special training for what God used them for. If anything, God chose, I mean, the poorest people with no official training for this. He looks through all of history, it says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, and he chose Mary, a teenager, from this little bitty town with no money and very little life experience. And he said, you know what? You're perfect to carry the Messiah into the world. And then when he showed up, the angels didn't appear to the royal court. They appeared to the shepherds in the fields. And when I think about these people who are serving over there in Asia, I, I think about them They're just pretty ordinary people. I I, I know three of the four very well. I've served with them on church staffs before. And they are pretty special people, but they're just ordinary. And you know what they did? They just laid their yes on the table. God, I don't know what you want to do with me, but I'm just going to lay my yes on the table. I'm not going to bow down to these idols of comfort and control or what might happen with my life. I'm just going to lay my yes on the table. Now, God, you use me. My encouragement to us this season is to keep making the confident decision to choose God's way. Saying no to anything and everything that promises peace that only God can bring. To guard our heart from any voice that offers quick fixes or shortcuts. And instead, the anthem of our heart would be, Jesus, I want you. And I am waiting on you. The payoff for doing things God's way is always better. But the enemy is so crafty and determined to deceive us, shouting that if we wait, it's a sign that God's not good to us. Friends, stay on the course. Don't give in to that. Choose a path that leads to life and hang on to the hope that Jesus outshines everything that glitters in this world. Just as we started with the story of God all the way back in Genesis, fast forwarding to today, your life is part of that story. My encouragement for you today is to allow yourself to be seized by God for something great. To get caught up in his greatness, to see God for who he is, changes everything about us. Two other quick quick things. While we wait, God waits with us. And while we wait, God is working on us. I finished the sermon this week and then I read in in Romans 12 yesterday the words of Paul and I felt like this was just a great definition of who Anna was. Let me remind you of this if you haven't seen this in a while in Romans 12 and verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation or affliction. And be constant in prayer. Isn't that God's heart for us concerning even what we've heard today? That we rejoice in hope that the gospel is here and it's available. That we're pa- patient through aff- affliction, but we're constant in prayer knowing that God is going to do something great. Let me pray to that end. The band's gonna come and lead us in a few more songs and our, some of our deacons, I think, are gonna come and uh, serve uh, communion. Personally, I love when we get to this part of the service because it's just this real physical reminder of this spiritual reality that Jesus just didn't say that he was going to come, but he came. And he didn't just say that greater love is no man than this, Then he laid on his life for his friends. Jesus actually did that for us. And he told us that as we take communion, we're to remember his death for us. But I want to give you some time to pray and ask God what he's leading you to do. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you that, that you're God and I'm not. Big God, little me. That you're in control of all things. It says in Colossians 1, that it's through you, Jesus, that everything was made that was made. Everything. That you measure the galaxies the prophet talks about by the span of your hand. That your angel reminds Mary that nothing is impossible with you. Nothing. No excuses can we bring to that. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you reveal in our hearts idols. That we've let creep in there somewhere in the dark corners of our heart of comfort and control and apathy that has seized us. May this testimony of your servants halfway around the world, may it encourage us May it push us off the bed of mediocrity. And Lord, I pray that we would l- lay our yes down in front of you. that like Anna, that we would be praying and fasting. For you to come again. And we pray with thousands and millions of others. Even so Lord Jesus. We pray that you come quickly. But while we wait. We work. We pray and we trust. And we rest. Knowing that the second advent. Will be such a glorious. Thing. Or do what you want. In the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I'll be in the back if anyone would like to pray. Come when you're ready to take communion. You don't have to be a member of our church, but scripture says you have to be part of God's family, having trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and living a life desiring to be obedient to him. Come when you're ready.